Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The subject of today is tackling this issue of ESG. These poorly performing woke financial scams are radical left garbage that would never be funded on their own. This is unacceptable to the president, and that is why he will veto this bill if it does come to his death. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. There have been times in America's history of intense global competition with another superpower who does not share our values. This is one of those times. The truth is that God is great, beer is good, and the United States of America is star-spangled awesome. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden warms up the veto pen. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics with ESG in focus today in Washington after the Senate passed legislation to block the Labor Department from enforcing its new ESG investing rule with the help of two Democrats, by the way, setting up a showdown with the White House. We will explore the debate and consider the outcome with Barry Riddles of Riddles Wealth Management, host of the Masters in Business podcast. The Secretary of Defense delivering another tough message to China. We'll talk with Bloomberg Washington Bureau Chief Peggy Collins about the Biden administration's delicate dance with Beijing. And as CPAC gets underway this week, the conference making news for who is not attending. We'll talk about that in all of our stories with our panel. Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and today Lester Munson from BGR Group is with us. The vote was mostly party line. The A's uh, on this vote are 50, the nays are 46, and the joint resolution is passed. Under the previous order, the Senate will resume legislative session. Every Republican and two Democrats in the Senate voting to pass a bill repealing a Labor Department rule allowing private sector workplace retirement plans to consider ESG. Right? We talk and read about so often here on Bloomberg. When selecting and monitoring their investments. The House also passed this. So President Biden says he's not going to sign it. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. This is unacceptable to the president. And that is why he will veto this bill if it does come to his desk. Veto. Not that this is a new debate. Governor Ron DeSantis has made ESG a pillar of his now national platform. He's recently calling to ban state agencies in Florida from investing in funds that follow ESG guidelines. I don't know where this stuff comes from, but these elites grab it and they really want to impose it on the rest of us. So uh, it's called environment social governance. But basically, I think what it's devolved into is a mechanism to inject political ideology into investment decisions, 
corporate governance, and really just the, the everyday economy. Uh, that is not ultimately something that is going to work out well. Donald Trump says it a bit more directly. These people are sick. These poorly performing woke financial scams are radical left garbage that would never be funded on their own and certainly never be funded on their own merits. The entire ESG scheme is designed to funnel your retirement money to the maniacs on the radical left. Maniacs. Sick people. So instead of talking to a politician about this, we thought this would be a very good time since things are actually happening in Washington and we're anticipating this veto. A good time to talk with an expert from outside the bubble here and none more appropriate than Barry Riddles, the chair and chief investment officer at Riddles Wealth Management. You know him as host of the Masters in Business podcast. He's with us now. Barry, welcome back. Does anyone in Washington actually know what they're talking about with ESG? Thank you so much for starting with that. I, I, okay. I'm listening to this, and I'm, I'm just astonished. I, I, I would be embarrassed to talk about a subject that I knew nothing about and reveal my ignorance in, in such an egregious way, but I guess that's why I'm not in politics. Yeah, we kind of specialize in that here. Yeah, yeah. You know, the irony of, of all this, uh, you know, criticism of people spending their money how they want, investing the money how they want— Really, you could trace the history of ESG investing back to, hey, I don't want to put my money into sin stocks. I'm against Mm -hmm. um, uh, investing in adult entertainment, alcohol. Today, you would have to add cannabis, uh, gambling, tobacco. Uh, That's the sin stocks are the original. Hey, (laughs) let's let's use our investment dollars and not reward people who are engaging in behavior that conflicts with our values. And so anyone who knows the history of this knows, you go all the way back, it was never originally a left versus right Mm. debate. It's how can I make my portfolio reflect my values? And and that's whether I'm a Catholic, whether I'm a Muslim with Sharia law. There are so many things that are just so much more nuanced Mm than the crazy we hear out of D.C., it's it's unfortunate that they've decided to politicize something that many, many investors find is a, a useful way to think about their portfolios. Well, we should also note this regulation allows retire. If you read this, if you take a minute, it allows retirement plans to consider ESG if it is in the best financial interest of the beneficiaries, that, that's frequently not included. But, Barry, a lot of this comes down, or maybe all of it, to defining ESG and defining what kinds of companies are included here. Uh, what you would call green may not be what someone else defies as green, right? That, that's exactly right. And, and you know, the, the problem that ESG has had from an investment approach is that it's very broad, it's very general, and if I'm buying a ESG mutual fund or an ESG ETF, well, then I'm adhering to someone else's definitions of what do we want to overweight and, and reward with our capital and what do we want to underweight or completely exclude because we don't like either their business or the impact of their business. And, you know, that might have been a, a, an adequate approach 25, 30 years ago. But thanks to technology and thanks to software, you know, we don't have to operate with, you know, with a a sledgehammer. We could use a scalpel and get very, very precise. Senator Patty Murray, of course, a Democrat, 
uh, from Washington made the point on the Senate floor during debate that we're forgetting a couple of letters here. Everybody focuses on the E. It's it, and that's got its own political implications and, and, and huge policy implications here. But listen to how she put it, Barry. When Republicans push for legislation to protect local and state governments that divest from companies based on their policies towards Israel, that is a form of ESG investing. It is also worth noting if you manage a retirement plan for a faith-based organization and you want to make sure you are investing in accordance with your client's faith, that too would be ESG investing. And when we call for divesting from foreign adversaries due to human rights and national security concerns, again, we are actually talking about ESG investing. So the way you interpret this concept uh, may actually reflect your politics, Barry, but I guess the point that she was making is ESG is actually pretty neutral. It's what you do with it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Look, you know, one of the more interesting technologies that have developed over the past couple of years has been direct indexing. And you you take your portfolio, and let's say it's a dozen mutual funds and ETFs, and, and say to the software, okay, convert these 10 mutual funds into all of the individual companies within those funds so I can hold them directly instead of through your fund or your index. And once you do that, software is magic and it lets you do things that you couldn't do before one of my favorite examples and this is why it's katie was clearly onto something it's not a left or right thing it's a tool in how you apply it if you happen to be pro-life and you say i don't want to support any companies that either fund abortion or abortion medication or embryonic research or fetal cell to, uh, fetal cells or fetal tissues yeah. or stem cell research, well, all told, that's about 75 names huh. that will come out of your portfolio. And now your uh, retirement account is no longer going to uh, fund something that you don't believe in. It, it, it's not a left or right thing. Now, th- you certainly can say, I'm anti-war, I don't want to invest in gun manufacturers or cluster bombs or defense contractors or landmines, and maybe that's a little more left than right, or animal testing, fur and leather, and there's lots of ways to slice this, but that's the beauty of it. You could do however you want to apply your values to your portfolio, and that should be your right as an investor. I hope this is helpful for people because we talk a lot about this without a lot of information. Barry, uh, the White House says repealing this rule limits options for investors. That was kind of uh, the angle that they're taking to justify a veto. Is Does that justify a veto? Is that the right way of looking at it? I, I mean, I think so. I, from my perspective, I like the direct index approach as opposed to the broad, mm-hmm. hey, we all have this value and therefore we're going to choose these funds. That's not my personal preference. Sure. However, if, if, a, if a, a 401k plan or a pension fund or some other endowment says, here's how we want to invest on behalf of all of our beneficiaries, because they've made it clear to us that this is important to them, uh, why shouldn't they have that option? Now, by the way, there's some fascinating stuff out of Texas, which obviously generates a ton of revenue from energy and oil yes, and natural gas. And they've said, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember which bank they tossed out. They said, hey, you're, you're not investing in 
oil and you're not allowing any of your clients to invest in oil and we're an oil state, get out of Texas, uh, they're essentially expressing their values by not putting money with that bank, which is really a form of ESG. It's, it's kind of ironic. That. Who's coming to you, lastly, Barry Riddles? Who are the, who's, who's the client? Most common client, and I heard you talking about this on Masters in Business recently. Uh, I think widow was one word that you used, but how many millennials are coming in versus uh, boomers? Is, is, is there a stereotype, or, or do investors get this better than Washington? So, so there's two ways to think about this. One way to think about this is a screen for eliminating some types of risk. And just look what happened with the train derailment that, you know, they had all sorts of governance problems prior. Um, they might not have made it through a certain type of ESG screen. When, when we look at um, under governance, business ethics, corruption and bribery, gender diversity, women on boards, uh, people of color on boards, governance structure and accountability, that, that acts as a screen. And we see a lot of interest in that on the institutional side. What people typically think about in terms of ESG is um, environmental things and social things, meaning on the environmental side, it's deforestation and and resource use and carbon footprint and things like that. Mm -hmm. Social can be things, anything from human rights to data privacy. And uh, there's a tendency for that to skew more towards women, and there's a tendency for that to skew more towards the youngest generation. Mm -hmm. And, hey, we're right in the middle of a giant $30, $35 trillion generational wealth transfer. First, that's going to go to the surviving spouse, statistically, Mm -hmm. the wife, and then it will eventually go to the kids. And both of those demographics have a stronger preference towards ESG investing than the investing community as a whole. So... I think this is going to be something that there will be some demand for over the next couple of of years, if not decades. The unique view of Barry Riddle. It's what a great pleasure. Uh, Barry, thanks for being with us. The host of the Masters in Business podcast, which you can find wherever you download your podcast and listen to the show all weekend long right here on Bloomberg Radio. Let's assemble the panel for their take on what we just heard. Jeannie Shanzano is here, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Democratic analyst, along with Republican strategist Lester Munson, principal at government relations firm BGR Group. Great to have both of you with us here. Uh, Jeannie, how did ESG become this lefty, woke idea? Based on what we just heard from Barry, somebody somebody went wrong somewhere with the interpretation because that's not at all actually what this is supposed to be, is it? Yeah, that's right. And I wish they would just play your conversation with Barry over and over again to clarify so much of what is wrong in the way this is talked about in Congress and in politics overall. And so, you know, explaining how and why this has happened, I think, is well beyond me. But in one thing I would add is that it is very much in line with what we're hearing from this sort of DeSantis approach to governing of late. Mm. You know, you have people like Tim Kaine saying this is a bad idea because it runs counter to free market principles. Let people take into account in their investments what they want to take into account. And as you so accurately mentioned, you're going to do that when you are going to be able to make money with it. So they're not going to be doing it in the absence of making money. That's the idea. That's the idea. And, you know, but you look at what DeSantis has done. Somebody who used to be about limited government is all of a sudden about using the power of the state to crack down on corporations. So it seems to me this sort of fissure on the Republican side in terms of 
what they really stand for, free market, small government, or the use of governmental power to tell people what they can and can't do or corporations what they can and can't do. But if you put the word woke on it, Lester, I guess it's good politics. This seems to be I mean, this is a slam dunk for Ron DeSantis, for Donald Trump and others who could be uh, the next president of the United States. Uh, Yeah, I may be the dissenter here. Uh, This is not just DeSantis and Trump. It's all the Republicans of every stripe and some Democrats who are concerned about this. And I think I think there is more nuance to this issue than we've been discussing. Right. This is we're talking about people's pension plans here. Yeah. They often do not have agency in the decisions that are being made about how their money's invested. They want their retirement to be as robust as possible. This uh, change in fiduciary duties of the people who are investing their money could lead to them getting lower returns. So I think this is a totally legitimate concern that uh, the Republicans have and that and that Biden's going to have a, a real tough decision, I think, on this veto. There's going to be consequences for him if he vetoes this because he's going to be perceived in that action as potentially reducing the pensions of the working class in this country. A lot of their a lot of their pensions are funded through these privately invested uh, investment funds. That's sure. what this labor rule is about. So uh, it's it's not just woke. Yes, woke is kind of the short, uh, you know, the bumper sticker description of the politics right. a little bit. But this is also about people's pensions and making sure they're as robust as they can be. If this were if this regulation, though, just to, to, to understand a little more about it, uh, requires the, this to be done in the best financial interest of beneficiaries. This is where I keep bumping up against the same question. Lester Munson, Jeannie Shanzano with us here on the fastest hour in politics as we turn next to geopolitics and a conversation with Peggy Collins. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 5 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. The Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, unexpectedly spent some time today with Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister from Russia at the G20. They bump into each other, so to speak, along the sidelines. And he had a message for the foreign minister, of course, that would be end the war in Ukraine. Officials at the G20, though, could not reach agreement on language to describe the war. Very similar to the outcome of the finance minister's uh meeting last weekend, if you recall. The U.S. did warn companies at the G20 to be on guard for transactions that could help Russia evade Western sanctions, especially if linked to China. The secretary spoke more about that. This is a shared concern, and many other partners uh, have uh, raised this, and not just raised this with us, but, it's my understanding, have raised it directly with China, including here today in Delhi. The competition, not conflict, as the administration likes to put it, with China on full display today in a conversation here at Bloomberg with Secretary Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce. Listen to the language she chose. Now, remember, of course, she's working on the chips issue specifically when it comes to economic competition, keeping certain technologies away from China. She talked about it with Bloomberg's Washington Bureau Chief Peggy Collins. There have been times in America's history of intense global competition with another superpower who does not share our values. This is one of those times. And, you know, in the same way that we invested in our nuclear capacity, we invested in, President Kennedy said we're going to put a man on the moon in the thick of the Cold War. 
This is a similar time. And so in this intense competition with China, it's going to revolve around uh, a lot of it around technology, not just who can make the, the best tanks and missiles, but who's going to lead with artificial intelligence, uh, you know, quantum, et cetera. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Washington Bureau Chief Peggy Collins, who led that conversation and some insights on this entire idea. Peggy, welcome back. Good to see you. Thank you, Joe. So great to be here. Intense global competition. Secretary Raimondo is comparing this moment with the nuclear arms race, putting a man on the moon on the Cold War, she said. In your conversation, the Pentagon and the State Department have their worries. They have their angle right now. But the putting a man on the moon moment here for her agency is what when you talk about technology? Well, I think it's semiconductor chips, really. It's about this unprecedented move by the Biden administration, which Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo is really running now in terms of plowing a lot of money into the U.S. to try to make us able to produce more semiconductor chips in this country and not depend on others at the same time that China's trying to do the same thing. You know, we saw incredible supply shortages in all sorts of things connected to chips, cars, other things, refrigerators during the pandemic. So this is a big push to try to make sure that we can build and make more in America. But at the same time, they're tying it to national security risks. So as you were just saying, Joe, you know, Secretary Blinken is talking about this. People on the Hill are talking about this. There's this real intersection going on right now between thinking about our economic growth and our national security risks when it comes to China. And it's two layers, of course. You talked a lot about the CHIP Act, and she's there to help implement this that's reshoring, as they say, right, or friendshoring, whatever we're going to call that. But the administration has also been very aggressive about keeping certain technologies out of China's hands. That's right. And Secretary Raimondo made that distinction that you just made. For a long, long time, the U.S. has been seen as a leader in many things connected to technology. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of cases, around the innovation and creation of it, not necessarily in the making of yes, it, right. you know, the actual, you know, hardware and factories and things like that. So in some ways, she is really putting out there that we can have a manufacturing renaissance with a new type of industrial policy. The question remains, like, how will this unfold over the next several years? How will people make sure that the money that goes out is accountable and spent well? There's a, these are huge questions. Mm-hmm. There's a conversation in Washington as well about secondary sanctions or maybe going after certain companies that are working with Russia and so forth. We've seen the Biden administration go after Chinese companies that designed the spy balloon, for instance. Are we going to see a lot more of that with regard to Ukraine or or trade law or whatever it is that the administration is concerned about? Well, you know, we've been doing a lot of reporting here since the Ukraine-Russia war around this idea of secondary sanctions. Mm-hmm. But they are more difficult to enact than maybe we would have thought of at this time last year. Um, I will say that Secretary Raimondo said in our interview that they are looking broader than something at like one company like TikTok, right? She's saying they are looking at more companies at that intersection of national security and privacy in the technology space. So there's a lot of people on the Hill who say we should just ban TikTok altogether. She was saying Mm -hmm. she feels like maybe a ban on one single company is not the way to go, but that they're working with legislators on the Hill to figure out a way to protect our national security and also allow for economic growth. This doesn't sound like two countries moving closer together. What does this look like in a couple of years if this is a Cold War right now? What is our economic relationship? 
Well, it's a great question, Joe. And I think there's a question of whether or not this is a race against time for both China and the U.S. While Taiwan controls so much of the semiconductor market to basically you know, build up their own capabilities before we do potentially have an even more um, catastrophic right. potentially issue come to us. But at the same time, Secretary of Com- Commerce Raimondo is saying, but we're not calling for a decoupling of the two economies. Mm-hmm. So the question is, but wait, if you ratchet up the heat and ratchet up the heat and ratchet up the heat, then is there an ability to keep trading some goods? I'm not sure. Well, we're developing quite a compartmentalized relationship, I guess, with China, aren't we? When you have Anthony Blinken on TV or at the G20 saying, you know, don't you dare send weapons to Russia. It will be a new level of escalation. Uh, You've got Joe Biden talking about competition versus conflict. You've got Secretary Raimondo hopefully talking about some sort of future of trade between the two companies, but with new restrictions put on it. How can you have all of these happening at the same time and have a productive relationship? Well, one of the things I was just thinking when you asked that question, Joe, is how can you have all these things going on with the without the potential for something to go wrong? Okay. <laughs> That's another you know way of I asking mean? it. So, yeah. I mean, you certainly – I think there's a lot of people with a lot of optimism that they can almost have two rails of like some open dialogue but then also kind of you know turn off some of the, the points where we feel it's at the intersection of our economy and national security. Yeah. But the more that that happens and the more that we ask allies to choose sides or this idea of friendshoring, maybe not even some of our traditional allies but countries that we're reaching out to more because of their natural resources and we're asking people to pick more sides, Mm -hmm. the potential for something, I think, to really be ratcheted up quickly and unexpectedly goes higher. It's a very tricky balancing act, isn't it? Right. I think think it is. And I think uh, just going back to what I said about resources, that's going to be like another area. We hear from a lot of people we talk to that this whole idea of critical minerals is the next, you know, but not necessarily the next thing that they're going to come out with a plan around, but the next issue that people are really focusing on where there could be a crossroads because of the lack of resources or who owns it and who's willing to trade with who. Fascinating. This is why it's important for you to go check out Peggy's interview with Secretary Gina Raimondo. Go to the terminal, search Raimondo, look at it on the website as well. Peggy Collins, great to see you Thanks in the so studio. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. Let's reassemble our panel for their thoughts. There's a lot to cover here with uh, Jeannie Shanzano, Democratic analyst, Bloomberg Politics contributor, and Republican analyst Lester Munson, principal at government relations firm. He's former staff director on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And Lester, uh, I just want to begin with the, the, the matter that we were discussing with Peggy that we heard Secretary Raimondo weigh in on here because it, it may well end up being the front lines of this economic Cold War, if we can call it that. And I know that that's its own debate. But keeping technology from China could be the most powerful weapon we have here in the U.S. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's a, a hugely important part of of the current competition with China. It's not a full economic decoupling, of course. Mm-hmm. That would be um, probably catastrophic economically for both countries. Yeah, but it's a strategic decoupling, and I think the Biden administration, uh, to its credit, is trying to do this in as smart a way as possible, and pick the sectors, uh, technological sectors where that do have some implications for national security and defense uh, and and target those and not do these really broad-based sanctions, which I think would be counterproductive, mm-hmm. but do very strategically uh, selected areas. And, and uh, Secretary Raimondo 
mentioned, um, you know, artificial intelligence and quantum computing and those kinds of things. Uh, big data uh, is directly related to all of this. That is that is that is a smart approach. And I think there's there's very broad bipartisan support for that kind of uh, strategic decoupling. Jeannie, do we start bumping into our own compartmentalization at some point here, though? Is it possible to have that kind of uh, relationship for the long term with China? We're like, hey, we really need you. We got it. We need you to stock up the Walmart shelves and do so many other things that we rely on you for. But you're not allowed, not allowed to have this stuff that you really want at some point. As Peggy indicated, that that balancing act could fall apart. Yeah, and I thought Peggy said it so beautifully. I mean, how long can you keep this up? And the reality is we have $690 billion in trade. We are deeply economically integrated with China, and yet we are at extreme loggerheads. And as, you know, listening to Peggy talk about her conversation, listening to the House China Select Committee, and and, and Lester is right, it's a bipartisan approach. You know, the idea that there was going to be some kind of, you know, even a cool war now seems to have heated up to this almost fever-like pitch, much of it having to do with this fight over microchips and, you know, how that's going to be resolved. They are indispensable to our military security and everything else in our lives, so it's understandable. But to your point, how long can you keep that up is a big question. It involves not just us, but Taiwan, South Korea, Mm -hmm. Japan, Netherlands, the list goes on and on. And at some point, we may push China too far. And I think that is is a big concern. I have to say, personally, I am concerned by the level of, you know, language that we're hearing in to the extent from Congress in some cases, you know, that we are in a war with China. That's dangerous when we're this reliant on them as well. The German Chancellor Olaf Scholz will be visiting the White House, uh, as you know, Lester, and uh, a senior U.S. official has been briefing reporters on on the upcoming visit. They they will tend to give us a little bit of a, of a, a top line overview and the the headlines on the terminal are pretty clear. Briefing reporters on upcoming Schultz visit. Biden Schultz to coordinate on Ukraine. Biden Schultz expected to discuss concerns about China. All roads lead to China, Lester, even through Kiev. How is its involvement in Ukraine going to determine the future of our relationship? Well, I think this is this is um, something that the administration was considering making a big. Uh, red line for China, you know, overt military support, offensive capability, ammunition, artillery, drones for Russia would be it would be a big red line in terms of Chinese behavior. The administration kind of launched that last week. They pulled it back a little bit uh, in subsequent days. Uh, But that's that's clearly a concern. And I think the I think the Biden administration is going to do everything it can diplomatically to uh, really strongly discourage China collaborating directly with the Russians. Mm-hmm. They've decided not to do that in public as much, I think. And this is this is going to be a little bit more behind the scenes. So they're probably looking for Scholes to help them with that. Uh, but this this is this is clearly going to be a big issue for the rest of the year. The 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 administration is increasingly making uh, the Ukraine conflict its number one national security priority. So all all decision making is going to be seen through that lens. And so that's going to impact the China relationship as well. Which will give Republicans more leverage to argue against continued funding, Jeannie. Is that the next leg in the story? 
Yeah, ironically, and and they are using the argument that we need to confront China so we can't be spending all of our resources helping Ukraine. And, you know, the other part of this is that one of the big things that Russia wants from China is semiconductors. They cannot produce them locally. So that's a great you bring this up. So where's the line then, Jeannie? They say no weapons. Semiconductors we've already established here are as powerful as weapons. Would that be any different? Yeah, and that is the that is the question, right? And they said no lethal support. And when yeah. pressed, Anthony Blinken, um, you know, we heard over and over again members of the administration unwilling um, to at least say publicly what they meant by lethal support. Not to mention what the evidence was that it was being considered, but what that meant is unclear. But you know, today semiconductors may well be defined, I would assume, as lethal support, because it's something in addition to drones and tanks Mm -hmm. and cruise missiles that Russia desperately needs. And so, you know, drones they've gotten from Iran, they would like them from uh, Russia. Semiconductors they can't produce. They need them. uh, I'm sorry, China. They need them from China. That's military support, whether we define it as lethal or not. I think the administration and NATO need to be clear on at least in their own minds. I do want to be clear as well that there are a lot of Republicans. In fact, the majority probably that support uh, funding the war in Ukraine. There are also uh, progressive Democrats who do not. But that that very vocal group of Republicans, mainly in the House, Lester, getting louder. Does that cry get even louder because we're folding China into the story then? I don't think so. There is there is this. You're right. There is this kind of national security argument that uh, in the marshalling of our resources and priorities, we really ought to focus on the near peer competitor, which is China. Mm-hmm. That means Russia, Ukraine comes second. Most Republicans, uh, as you pointed out, actually think you have to think of this holistically. There's if the U.S. is going to be the global leader, as we should be, uh, you can't just neglect the Ukraine issue. Mitch McConnell, uh, no less person than Mitch McConnell, specifically addressed this issue in Munich a few days ago uh, in a public speech. So this is but it's very much foreign policy debate. It's a little bit of a political debate. And yes, uh, for some reason, we tend to pay attention to these crazy voices in the Republican Party who Mm want to cut off the funding when I would say 70 or 80 percent are in favor of of continuing it. Lester Munson on our panel today, along with Jeannie Shanzano, these conversations really remind us that none of these stories can exist in a vacuum. Everything we talk about here affects something else that we're also talking about here. And that's certainly the way of the world right now and the way of the world in Washington. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. And time for CPAC. It is underway this week in Washington. You know, the conservative political action conference more has been made about the people deciding not to attend than those who are attending. Like Senator Rick Scott, who helped get the ball rolling today. So welcome to America in the year 2023 where we are destroying the country we love. That's what's happening right here in America. We are destroying the country we love. Now, to be clear, it's not you, it's not me. We're not destroying our country. It's the, it's the, 
It's the President of the United States who is destroying our country. It's the U.S. Senate that is destroying our country. It's the news media. It's the Democrat Party, academia, Hollywood, Wall Street, and many of our big corporations. Wait. That leaves everything but the Republican Party. It wasn't all so dour, not so far. Senator Kennedy, of course, keeping things on the up and up. John Kennedy of Louisiana. I look for grace wherever I can find it. Oh, see? Exactly. So I say this gently. The Biden administration sucks. Okay. (laughs) Getting to the point, we reassemble our panel here with CPAC, the backdrop, Lester Munson and Jeannie Shanzano. Uh, Lester, as I mentioned, a lot has been said about the people who are not there. We know that Donald Trump is the headliner, and this is the organization, and this event is turning into a bit of a Trump convention. Ron DeSantis will not be there. Kevin McCarthy will not be there. I don't think any chairs, significant chairs uh, from Capitol Hill will be there. Mike Pence is not attending. Mitch McConnell is not attending. So what is CPAC becoming? It, well, uh, it sounds like they're um, you know, doing a good job of producing some colorful rhetoric and sure. uh, ap- apocalyptic visions. <laughs> That's more the case. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure how much that's going to sell. Uh, to voters, uh, probably not much, which is which is probably why we're seeing a lot of these presidential candidates take a flyer on it. Uh, Donald Trump does, uh, for whatever his other qualities, um, does do a good job of reaching out to kind of the the crazy fringe base and making sure they know he's with them. So I'm not surprised that he's there. Uh, CPAC has always been a little bit like the bar scene in uh, Star Wars to me. <laughs> Uh, with a lot of strange characters uh, with a book dressed fair. in, yeah, dressed oddly and uh, and that kind of thing, strange music. Um, well, there so, was a, always it, a festive kind of element to CPAC, right? It's just become yes. a little bit less inclusive, uh, maybe. It is is it just for a specific slice of the Republican Party? Your point? It, it does seem that way, and um, and and I think this and I think this vision of you know the, of Democrats destroying America is not. Not something other, a lot of clearly a lot of other Republicans want to be associated with. It could be some of the other issues that CPAC, some of its leadership has struggled with recently. Yeah. Um, it's been in the news a little bit, uh, but I, but I think CPAC it's a it's a fringe element. I think it's not it's not the place where you're going to see the mainstream of the Republican Party or the conservative movement generally speaking. It hasn't been that way for a while. This is this is some fringe folks who are are going to get some headlines and maybe some clicks on their. Uh, social media because of it. Well, I guess case in point, when you talk establishment, the chair of the Republican National Committee is not attending either, Ronald McDaniel. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene there, Matt Gates, Ted Cruz, all speaking to the crowd. Uh, the one member of leadership is Elise Stefanik, who's going to make an appear- appearance. Or Jim Jordan uh, was talking today. I guess I can check myself on the uh, on, on the chairs. Also, uh, Representative Scott Perry speaking today. Jeannie, I, I, I don't know if he was talking about you here. Well, this is his remark talking about uh, the challenge to personal sovereignty that Democrats 
are making. Our personal sovereignty is what this nation was built on, and it's the foundation. It is under assault by every single facet of the government. And as Ralph has said, we are going to create a firestorm. Look, if it's up to me, there's going to be a firestorm. These leftists, these uh, Marxists that, that, that have prevailed upon the American people and used the awesome power of the federal government to cow us into, into fear in our homes, they've got to be put on notice. They've got to be quaking in fear. They've got to be worried. They've got to be losing weight because they're not eating, because they're worried that they're going to end up going to jail. Wow. Um, who's going to jail, Jeannie? I I am quaking. I'm hoping I'm going to lose weight. This is all good. I didn't know how powerful I actually was. <laughs> and I'm still and trying I'm to figure I'm out. Weight too. Yeah, this is great. And, you know, Lester talking about the Star Wars bar, Java the Hutt's throne room. I don't know which one it was. But, you know, I, I think what we're seeing with CPAC, to your original question, is something that was powerful and did have an enormous uh, voice and a play in choosing the Republican nominee, or at least have a, have a voice in that at one point, has now become uh, increasingly, um, you know, the home of this MAGA extremism. And, and that's what we're hearing there. That's not to say everybody there, but a good number of them. And that's why we're seeing people stay away, because they know that in 2020, Republicans lost the White House because of this. And in in 2022, they missed the mark. They should have done much better than they did, and they didn't because of a lot of this extremist. So I think, you know, we see that with the donor class, for instance. I do think there's a question as to whether it, it resonates with primary vote, you know, no primary voters, but we're seeing it with the donor class, the Cokes and others who are saying, listen, we've got to turn the page on this. We've got to choose people who are electable. And that's why we're seeing DeSantis and others say, Come to me. I will talk to you about moving forward, but I'm not going to look back and be, uh, you know, sort of caught in this MAGA environment. But I think this is a big test for Donald Trump if he does poorly in this straw poll or if he doesn't seem to have the sway with the group that he should. It's a sign he's in real trouble and his grip on this part of the party is failing, which would be a bad sign for him, although he still is, you know, number one in the polls. That's clear. I can remember uh, Mitt Romney withdrawing from the presidential race. I get that. That would have been 2008, Lester. He did it at CPAC. Some people were sobbing. That was a major moment uh, in the campaign. When you consider the, the change in rhetoric and direction of the Republican Party since then, is this enough of a base to help Donald Trump win Sorry, the nomination I think again? That's, yeah, I think looking back to 2008, that's when Mitt Romney was kind of the conservative standard bearer right. against the more means, you know, the more uh, kind of uh, chamber of commerce type of um, of John McCain. Uh -huh. So, yeah, the, the party has definitely changed. You know, we've seen uh, anyone who's conservative in the Democratic Party is now a Republican. Anyone who was moderate or liberal in the Democrats is now um, or, or any uh, moderates or liberals the in the Republican now. Party is now yeah. a Democrat. Yeah, like it really kind of pulled apart to the to everyone's gone to their corners, and um, and and this is the most cornered part now at CPAC of of the right. Huh. And I think it's more, you know, honestly, I, I think it's more entertainment value and a platform for folks who who don't really have necessarily a policy agenda sure. they're there to be provocative and say things that get people ginned up and we'll get them some clicks and some views that's so this is this is much more performative than it is any kind of policy debate that's going on at cpac lester and Jeannie with some final thoughts coming up fascinating insights 
You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. And so the investigation begins. The House Ethics Committee opening an investigation into not just one, but a series of alleged unlawful acts by, yes, George Santos, who tweets, or at least his office tweets, George Santos is fully cooperating. There will be no further comment made at this time. Not that there's been a lot of comment to begin with. Are you confident that you will be clear? Yes, I am. Why, Why are you confident? I'm confident clear? I'll be clear because I have, I have nothing to hide. Nothing to hide. That was back on the 31st of January. He doesn't do the whole run down the hallway of the reporters quite as often anymore. But this, of course, is the Republican from New York who lied about his resume and, well, most of his life. Now, this is far-reaching stuff. An investigative panel, I believe it's 10 members, a 10-member committee, to be chaired by Republican David Joyce of Ohio. We'll look into a range of allegations I read on the terminal, including whether Santos engaged in sexual misconduct involving an individual seeking employment in his congressional office. So this is since he got elected. The panel will also determine if he engaged in unlawful activity with respect to his congressional campaign. If he failed to properly disclose required information on statements filed in the House and whether Santos violated federal conflict of interest laws in connection with his role in a firm providing fiduciary services. Thoughts from the panel, Lester Munson and Jeannie Shanzano here. Jeannie, we have talked a lot about George Santos over the last couple of months. Seems to be almost enjoying himself lately. Now it feels like it's getting a little more serious. Or is this just another show for the media? It is another nail in the coffin for George Santos. I have to say I am personally a little sad. Just yesterday he introduced a salt bill. You know I'm a big proponent of that. But looks like it wasn't going to go anywhere anyway. So that's okay. But, you know, this is, you know, on top of what the U.S. Attorney's Office, the the Federal Election Commission, New York Attorney General, Nassau County, um, 66% of his constituents wanting him out. The reality here, though, is that the ethics in the House will take a long, long time and they may even pause the investigation while these other investigations run their course. So this isn't going to be fast. There's going to be a lot more George Santos to go around, I think, for many months to come. And that's the way Kevin McCarthy wants it. Last thing he wants is George Santos out and Kathy Hochul calling for a special election that Republicans are likely to lose out there. Well, of course, Lester, we, you know, also, if you're censured by the ethics committee, that doesn't mean you're you're getting fired. We We do need to remind our listeners of that. Yeah, I think it takes a two-thirds vote of the whole House to uh, eject someone from the body, but they can do it. And uh, it sounds to me like Kevin McCarthy is uh, has his mind made up that if the committee finds uh, Santos has broken the law, that they, that they will do that. And, and I disagree with uh, Jeannie a little bit here. I think I think it behooves House Republican leadership to move this as quickly as possible. Uh, come to the logical conclusion here and do what you need to do uh, sooner rather than later and move on to the next thing, because none none of this does the House Republicans any good in the long run. Well, the vote does in the meantime, though, doesn't it? I mean, if Kevin McCarthy uh, says goodbye to George Santos, that makes the math ever more difficult. 
Yeah, the math is already difficult. <laughs> he's already he's already got a is pretty thin margin. This uh, this will maybe make it slightly thinner. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, he's going to be doing most of certainly all the spending stuff will be on partisan lines for a while. So he's still got a three or four vote margin. Um, I'd go ahead and get rid of the headache and wow. then uh, try and fix the math later. You're going to miss the jokes, though, Jeannie. Well, if he wanted to pull the Band-Aid, he would have. Politically, it's not in his interest. And plus, we want him to stay. He's been good fodder for us. Well, I mean, the Dunkin' Donuts, that's its own thing, right? (laughs) Jeannie Shinzano and Lester Munson, I thank you. A great conversation. Are they still putting donuts out in front of his office? We should go stake out. A sound on stakeout. I'll meet you back here tomorrow. Only one place, of course. This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.